Canada has had this wonderful reputation, which a lot of our reputation really was undeserving. Canadians can be very authoritarian. It's the fault of Canadians not understanding what authoritarian governments can lead to. Welcome back to the Freedom Footprint Show, the Bitcoin philosophy show with Knut Svanholm and me, Luke the Sudofin. Today, we're joined by Benjamin Dichter, the author of Honking for Freedom, the inside story of the historic Canadian trucker convoy of 2022, the largest peaceful protest in Canadian history. Benjamin is also a Bitcoiner and Bitcoin played a big role in the protests. We hear all about it. Let's get into it. Benjamin, welcome to the Freedom Footprint Show. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great. Today we have two Canadians on the show. That's not every day. One who fled and one who stood his ground back in Canada. Uh, and I can see your coffee mug there, Benjamin. It says, honking for freedom. Honking for freedom. And, uh, and don't be a chooch. Don't be a who is that there? <laughs> <laughs> I think I recognize that face. So, so you were the spokesperson for the whole um, like trucker convoy that happened uh, like, uh, that like a year ago now. It's about a year and a half. Well, it's Feb- it'll be two years in February. Yeah, I was the spokesperson and did the media strategy and a bunch of other things behind the scenes that uh, people don't know about. But yeah, uh, I wrote a book about it. I did. Here's the book, Honking for Freedom, the trucker convoy that gave us hope. And you can get it at honkingforfreedom.com. And we'll talk about later the Bitcoin story that's in this book, which is very important for everybody. It is a very important story. And um, for those of you uh, who don't know, like um, some of these truckers' bank accounts were frozen. And then there was only one way to get around uh, the totalitarianism vibes <laughs> that was, were going on in in uh, Canada at the time, and that was through Bitcoin. And uh, well, Benjamin, I'll, I'll let you tell the story from beginning to end. First, a little TLDR on who you are and your background, and then uh, about the trucker convoy, what happened, how it played out. Okay. Um, and just an asterisk to start with, when you mentioned our bank accounts were frozen, uh, it wasn't just my mine and many others' personal bank accounts. It was our credit cards, lines of credits, corporate bank accounts, absolutely everything that you would need to transact were, uh, were frozen. But uh, anyway, so a little bit of context of who the hell is this guy? Uh, <laughs> I'm uh, just kind of a, a serial entrepreneur. I started, I went to school and became a gemologist and a diamond grader just because I like the science aspect of it. I decided after several years, I didn't really love that industry so much because of, you know, the 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 cliquey nature of it, and I invented a product for motorcycles, patented it, uh, started working on that, ended up uh, working at Harley-Davidson, then a sales director for another company, and then started my own business. That was on a university campus for uh, many years. And that's where I guess the shift, I started to see the shift in society, which got me to get involved politically. I decided to run for uh, political office uh, in the municipal campaign in the city just because we saw some crazy nonsense in our particular uh, riding. The person was tied to the CCP and was running an organization called Queers for uh, Palestine or something like that, just some nonsense. And uh, one thing led to another. I, you know, I decided oh, I'll, I'll get involved in politics to try to help. Right. You know, everybody complains, but they never do anything. 
And uh, I figured I'll go as far until I stop, <clears throat> until I get stopped. And I was eventually asked to run for federal parliament for the conservatives. And which is ironic because I, I really kind of hate politics because I don't like politicians. I always grew up with you can't trust them sort of thing. Uh, one thing led to another. I sold my business. I started doing podcasts because I always wanted to do podcasts. That was the, the, the latest, you know, venture. Learned how to do podcasts from a, um, uh, a YouTuber that my ex-girlfriend knew by the name of CGP Gray. And uh, started doing podcasts. And the next thing you know, I'm at the center of this trucker convoy. Because during, convo during COVID, you know how, uh, I mean, look, Luke, you know how ridiculous the the um, lockdowns were in Canada. Yeah, I, I, I say, uh, let's use the right terminology, during the lockdowns. <laughs> because there's no such thing as during COVID, right? It's during the lockdowns. <laughs> during the government's response to that nonsense sort of thing. Uh, but during the, uh, the lockdowns, um, my brother had already bought a truck because he wanted to go. He always going to be retiring. He's, he's a police officer. Um, and he always wanted to, to uh, get back into trucking, which he did when he was younger. That's so he paid his way through school, I think. And not I think, but it's more, there's more to that. But anyways... And he said to me, hey, listen, why don't you buy a truck? Get your license. He told me a few years prior to get my license, just as you never know. So I did. While I was doing podcasts, I got my trucker license. Okay, fine, cool. Interesting to learn this, to have another skill set. And beyond, you know, planes and motorcycles. And then he, he said to me during the lockdowns, he said, why don't you get a truck and we can go together across the border and get some sanity in the United States, have a little bit of freedom and go for dinner and spend some time and whatever. And uh, you never know, maybe when I retire, we can start a trucking business together or something like that. You know, just kind of, I've always been one of those things, try everything, uh, build you know, Scott Adams, who I've gotten to know pretty well, that uh, he talks about building, you know, your, uh, your skill sets, your talent stack. The Dilbert, Dilbert creator, right? That's right. That's right. Uh, Dilbert creator. And uh, so I ended up, uh, you know, cross-border trucking just to get some sanity in my life. And boy, it, it really helped. It's not that I followed any rules. I never put on any masks beyond when I had surgery. And, uh, you know, I got a call one day from Tamara Leach, who I knew. I knew her from when I was producing my podcast. She was a fan of one of those podcasts. And that podcast where we went on a tour of Western Canada, uh, well, I can't remember what year, it was 2018 maybe, 2017. And that's where I met her. And we always kept in touch, developed a friendship sort of thing. And, you know, she's a political hawk. I'm, I don't like politics. I just don't like, you know, bullshit in our government. And uh, so we always talked about that sort of stuff. And one day she called me up. She said, we're, me and my friends started a convoy which turns out that wasn't exactly entirely true, but okay, fine. And she said, we need somebody who's going to do some, uh, who can, who has media training, understands media, alternative media, all that stuff, can do press releases. And I said, yeah, sure. If it's going to help put an end to this nonsense, I'm on, I'm on board. And I said to her, but there's one, I have one condition, no political parties, no politics, no nothing. We're, we're not here to help any political parties. We're here to end mandates and end arrive can. The only politicians we want to talk to are the ones who actually hold any power and who can reverse these temp temporary measures. And that's how I got involved. 
who could imagine that 10 years ago that Canadians would go to the U.S., <laughs> cross the border to the U.S. for sanity? <laughs> do, you know how, do you know how many Canadians I know who have not only moved to, you know, Florida, but are all over Latin America? Yeah, yeah, I know. I know a whole bunch uh, uh, that have done that. Like uh, a few come to my life. Francis did that, right, from Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, a, and a bunch of others. One of the people I become friends with, which is it's funny, Megan Murphy, who used to be, you know, uh, feminist, uh, socialist, very, very much to the left. So we have uh, polar opposite political worldviews, which is fine. You know, we have to have more friends who disagree with us politically. Uh, she's close with Joe Rogan, that sort of stuff. She left Canada. She moved to Mexico. She's like, screw this. I'm not staying here under any authoritarianism. I'm like, oh, that's, it's interesting how that has helped wake up a lot of people who might have been on the fringes, either fringe of the political spectrum. So I think it's going to end up being a net, net positive over the long term because it's allowed many of us who probably wouldn't have been able to engage in conversations many years ago to form friendships and start to understand each other, which is a massive benefit of Bitcoin that we don't talk much uh, enough about the fact that it brings together people who have divergent political worldviews. Absolutely. And divergent religions or other things as well. Like uh, Bitcoin is apolitical. There's the, it's anti-political even. So please tell what, what happened? Like what, uh, what led up to, to Canada being one of the most Awful places to be during during this, uh, for lack of a better word, pandemic. Well, the first thing, just to uh, you know, to ch change perspective a little bit, I think one of the benefits of this whole, you know, the COVID years, the lockdown years, whatever you want to call it, is it's it's helped people to become better informed about their countries and how they operate. And a perfect example is, you know, in Australia, in their constitution, there's no such thing as natural rights. It's really it's a very authoritarian state. They believe their constitution states rights are granted to you by the government. Natural rights don't exist. Uh, Canada has had this wonderful reputation, which, you know, Luke, you're from Alberta. Alberta has, has bared the brunt of the Trudeau family for, for decades, for a couple of generations now. And I know a lot of Albertans would, would not be paused when I say, would not take pause in when I say that a lot of our reputation really was undeserving. It really wasn't that um, Canadians can be very, very authoritarian, just like the um, uh, just like people, uh, just like the Australian Constitution. Right? It's it's really quite concerning. It's like you know, where I live, you can see it that the authoritarianism has been empowered now where I drive down the street and every block, not every block, every house has a sign saying, slow down. It's like, you're thinking past the sale, buddy. <laughs> you, you, you know what I mean? But that's kind of the mentality of people here. And that's why it was so easy, uh, I, I believe, to promulgate this nonsense in Canada. It's the fault of Canadians not understanding what authoritarian governments can lead to. I'll get to the background in a second, but just one other point on this is, you know, we all come from different backgrounds. Uh, I happen to be adopted, but I was uh, raised in a Jewish family. I'm very, very secular. Uh, but at the same time, I grew up being taught about the, you know, the horrors of the Holocaust and, you know, genocide and 
you know, Rwanda happened later on. And this is, you know, Pol Pot, Cambodia, like this is not new to humanity. But the problem they always seem to skip over was, you know, those mid-century Germans were the government. And the people who engaged in killing and ratting people out and sending them to camps in the views, in the eyes of the government at that point, those were lawful, upstanding citizens. And it's amazing. It's just striking how that is so lost amongst so many people in the West. So we take we take the bait about different people's cultures and this group is controlling the world and blah, 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 blah. But we forget the fact that it's the government apparatus that has killed immensely more people throughout human history than any other individual or group. Or I'm not a big group guy. I'm an individualist guy. Word, brother. I mean, this is, uh, as I always say, like, if you don't want to be labeled a Nazi, don't be a nationalist and don't be a socialist. And you're fine. Like, <laughs> the, the, both are the two things you need to avoid. So uh, we'll get into the meat of this um, uh, a bit later on, like, uh, because I'm very curious if, like, uh, totalitarianism is inevitable to happen in a democracy uh, at some point. And it also, if democracy is just socialism in disguise, and that uh, it's inevitable that the, it, it, it's an unsustainable system that does not scale. Like, um, well, what are your views on that? I don't know. Uh, I think it's a very good question that a lot of us are examining right now. And, you know, the tyranny of the majority is something that everybody who's a, a you know, philosopher, political thinker has thought about, you know, since the inception of these democracies, even the four founders in the United States. Yeah, the, the, the word democracy isn't mentioned once in the Constitution of the U.S., which I find hilarious. That's right. That's right. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it's a bug in the code of human programming. Uh, one of the things that, you know, I got, on t I got in touch with Scott Adams, you know, during, uh, after the convoy, but I started following him years prior because I was a fan of Robert Cialdini's work and persuasion and influence and that sort of NLP pop psychology. I, I just got really deep into it many, many years ago as part of learning marketing for uh, one of the, the projects I was involved in. And I'm getting, you know, you can see, especially during the, me the legacy media response to the trucker convoy, we'll get back to the origin in a second, how easily human beings can be programmed to believe absolutely anything. And if that's the case, and the, the non-free will people have a point in some capacity, then, well, <laughs> this democracy thing might not actually work if people can just be manipulated into believing some of the most absurd things uh, that will be pitched to them, as long as there's social proof, sufficient fear, and all the persuasion tactics that are piled on top of it. So I think it might be more of a problem, uh, the buggy code of human beings and understanding how we're programmed, whereas democracy just might be the apparatus, that it might be a great system. Like E.O. Wilson said about socialism, he said, it's a great system, wrong species. Maybe that applies to democracy as well. Great system, wrong species, and we need something else. I don't know. I, I really, 
that's too, that's above my pay grade. <laughs> well, I can recommend a couple of great books on the subject and how, how it might be the system itself and, and not that there's something wrong with humans. Because the system leads to these things, uh, institutions growing like cancers on society and people voting. Like if, if you're the, on the receiving end of a tax funded benefit, they, you're unlikely to vote against it, which yeah, means yeah. that people want to live off of other people's work, uh, in the long, and in the long run, that leads to collective, more and more collectivism, more and more socialism and then totalitarianism and then collapse then via clown world. Yeah. If you want, if you want more clown, war, clown world, then subsidize it. It's, uh, that's, <laughs> that's quotable. Uh, if you want more clown, clown world, subsidize clowns. <laughs> Anyways, to, so to get back to a little bit, you know, the, the short version, the origin story, I was asked to become, you know, a voice spokesperson, press releases, media strategy, all that sort of stuff. And uh, I realized, I thought back to when I was uh, a teenager and I used to go to Grateful Dead concerts and Fish concerts and the Almond Brothers and stuff, that we needed that sort of vibe. We needed to have a positive, loving vibe to bring people together. We can't focus on what the government always does, which is divide people into different camps and different voting blocks. I needed to, I needed to shred all of that and have us just be kind of one unified group those of us who value freedom. And that's why I culminated on peace, love, unity, and freedom. Try to give some positive connotation to what it was and change it from like when she called me, said, you know, we're going to go and we're going to protest uh, Trudeau and the uh, mandates. And, you know, I thought, well, why don't we just celebrate freedom and celebrate Canada and celebrate getting our freedoms back? And if we could do that, then maybe uh, this, you know, political spectrum, which is no longer relevant, you know, the left right uh, paradigm, it's no longer relevant in our current world. Maybe we can break that up a little bit and we can get people from all, you know, perspectives and all ideas coming together. And I remember when I came, uh, when I arrived in Ottawa the first day, I'm walking up to um, Parliament Hill on Wellington. And the first group that really that really um, captured me were there are these three girls that maybe late teens, early 20s, something like that, decked out, even though they're in snowsuits, they're decked out in tie-dye with a peace sign that was like straight out of Woodstock sort of thing. And I'm like, it worked. It worked. And I looked to my right and I saw next to the Chateau Laurier, which is the hotel next to Parliament, uh, there is a path between the two and a big park. And at the end of that park, there's a bridge into Quebec. Quebec is French Canada. Ottawa is Anglo Canada. And I saw all these people, thousands of them. I took a picture of it, just a, a mob of thousands of people who apparently got out of their cars because the city of Ottawa blocked the, um, the uh, bridge entering into Ottawa. And they said, fine. They just left their cars at the side of the road. And they walked from Quebec into Ontario with and luke you'll you'll understand the significance of this canadian flags and fleur-de-lis which is the quebec flag uh, they're holding signs that said freedom and liberté which is freedom in in french and you know i've said this many times i would i, I walked with a whole crowd of them and then up wellington back up wellington 
I saw them reach out to and find all these truckers with Alberta plates and Saskatchewan plates and reach out and hug them and thank them. Nobody was wearing masks because at that time we had mask mandates again. Nobody gave a damn about any of that stuff. And I realized that, wow, when you get the, the, the fake news media and politicians out of the way, you know, we all love each other. Yeah, we're different. People from Quebec and Alberta are different. Whatever. Who cares, right? It's the political apparatus and the structure that builds these narratives to brainwash us to think that we're completely different and we have different a different value system. So that was just the first day that I was there. It was an and the entire time. I mean, for me, it was chaos because I was dealing with problem after problem after problem after problem and trying to mix in as many interviews as possible around that. But everybody who was there had that similar experience. And that's why it ended up they had dance parties on different corners around the city. You know, there was one that was a salsa Latino music. There was one that was EDM in front of parliament near the stage and stuff like that. Uh, they built three. Uh, sorry, they built a, a soup kitchen. Uh, uh, there was a, guy, a group of guys, the hot tub, three saunas. Yeah, everybody saw the bouncy castles. Uh, the Sikh community came out and a bunch of them brought barbecues. Somebody owned a chain of restaurants. So he brought packaging for the food and they were just giving out food to all the people who attended. And then they found people like homeless people in the city and they started distributing food to the homeless people in the city. That really bothered the politicians, right? Because they can't virtue, they can't use them as a political pawn now because the truckers are actually doing the crap that they claim to do. So that was the vibe of the entire thing. And, you know, what I realized that I got buy-in with this narrative of peace, love, unity, and freedom, I realized that, okay, the government's got a problem now because how are they going to go violent on these people when we're just having a celebration and asking for these temporary authoritarian restrictions to be removed? I mean, you can't have a more reasonable ask than that. And, um, yeah, that's, that's really how it started. And that was the vibe the entire way through. One thing that wasn't reported in the media was like, how did the whole thing end? Like, did it just just snuff out naturally or like, how, how long were these protests going on for? And like, how, how, how did the whole thing end? Well, that's, (laughs) that's part of why I wrote this book as quickly as I could, because I knew Oh, the um, the spin masters and media and government would try to spin, you know, racist, bigot, blah, 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 whatever, phobe, and that that was all nonsense, right? So a word first on the media, and then I'll explain how it ended. This, I thought, was my opportunity to uh, troll and destroy the corporate legacy fake news media. That was one of the goals. I knew, I, I looked at because again, I've been producing podcasts forever. I knew everybody in the alternative media space. And I thought, I did a, a basic, you know, threw out a spreadsheet, bunch of different platforms. And I'm like, I think we could get 100 million views the first week. And if I could do that, that would dwarf and crush all the legacy media who at that time weren't even reporting on it. You'd see one story here and there that, oh, there's going to be a convoy, but they were largely trying to ignore it. So I needed to bait them into talking about it, but I wanted the actual uh, legacy, uh, legacy media, alternative media, I wanted them to be the voice for what we were, because we're all sick of 
fake news media, whether it's CTV, CBC, CNN, Fox News, whatever. We know it's all scripted. So what I did was we had our first press conference on January 30th, and I sent out an invite to a media list that I had, because again, remember, I was a political candidate. I'd done some political stuff, very libertarian stuff in politics behind the scenes prior. So I had a media list, and I also had an alternative media list of people I know. So I emailed everybody, and I said, hey, we're going to have our first press conference on the 30th of January, but we have limited space because it's in a small hotel. If you want to attend, uh, please send a request to attend, and we'll try to accommodate you. So the very first news agency, I believe it was the Globe and Mail, uh, which is a, a, a legacy newspaper in Canada, responded. And remember, these are the people who were ignoring us, and any sort of coverage would be you know, defaming us. I, um, they responded, and they said, yeah, we would like to attend. So that was like my, my little moments of joy during the convoy. I just got to, and I typed them individually just because I wanted to. I sent a response saying, I'm sorry, you're not recognized as a credible news agency. You're not permitted to attend. Thank you for your uh, request to participate. Oh, fantastic. That, mu <laughs> that must have felt so good. They went crazy. And that's when they started racist, bigot, white supremacist, whatever. And I'm like, perfect. That's exactly what I need. I need them to discredit themselves and have the actual story dwarf them in alternative media. And their heads are still spinning from this. So that was kind of the, the media play that I did the entire time. And I remember one time they got, they got so butthurt, the people, the collaborators who sabotaged us, and they tried to hang me with this in the POEC. Not an, I was not going to adjudicate media strategy with them during the commission, which was, we'll discuss after. But I remember I got a, a CBC, like political parties, they test messaging, right? So some moron at the CBC started, uh, was on some show and saying, asking the question, could this be a Russian disinformation plot or however they described or a Russian operation? And I thought, wait, Russia today asked me for an interview. <laughs> I wonder if I can troll them to shoot themselves in the foot again. So I respond, I'm like, hey, Pavel, yeah, you said you wanted to have me on. Sure. Let's, let's do an interview tonight. And he said, okay. So I went to Russia that night and I thought the CBC would take the bait and double, triple down on this Russia, Russia, Russia hoax, but uh, they were wise enough not to do it, unfortunately. So those are the sorts of games that were going on every day. Every day I was dealing with stuff like that. It was amazing. I think I, I'll, I'll just add quickly that CBC is state-funded media in in Canada. It's it's it receives funding from the government. It's absolutely the the most ideologically uh, down the line with Trudeau uh, of any of the media. The rest are bad too, but CBC is is the worst. In my and they get one point two billion dollars a year in funding, and you get more views on your podcast than they get. You know how many paid subscribers the CBC has? I, I somebody leaked this to me a couple of years ago. You know how many paid subscribers that $1.2 billion has allowed them to capture? I know the actual number. Take a guess. The CBC, $1.2 billion. They have uh, stations, hundreds of stations across the country, TV and radio. How many paid subscribers do they have? Take a guess. Throw out a number. 40 million people. Uh, 10,000? Two. 2,000. Fantastic. Yeah. This reminds me uh, a lot. 
uh, of Sweden, like like um, similar things have been going on. Like we, when I grew up, everyone had to pay a, a fee if they had a television. So if you bought a television, you were sort of on the government radar, and you could always claim that you gave the television away or something, and and refuse to pay the fee. But they fixed that uh, by by like making everyone pay for everyone else's state-funded uh, TV media. And that costs around uh, 9 million krona per year. No, not 9, 9 billion krona per year. Uh, <laughs> money well wasted, uh, which is completely ridiculous to produce stuff that that is very, very embarrassing. So uh, exactly. these, these institutions, they're, they're, they're trying to cling on to whatever power they have because I, I think some of them know that they're a dying breed. Uh, that uh, Tucker Carlson interview with uh, Melee on Twitter got more views than anything on TV <laughs> like that week. I think it was 400 million over the first week, if I'm not correct. Yeah, it's completely thinking. ridiculous numbers. And, and Joe Rogan is the greatest journalist in history, if, if you only count views. Like, there's, there's just no one in even close to getting as much attention as he does. So the, the internet is like markets unite, politics divide, and they can feel that they're, that, that's why you get all these like fake news and like uh, term, this terminology that they invent, uh, you know, calling everyone who isn't a Nazi a Nazi and uh, <laughs> calling people who, 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 who don't care about race racist. And, and and all these Orwellian, um, you know, newspeak words. Uh, the, the, they really tried to make 1984 uh, be, become a reality in that sense. Yeah, go figure. The government runs the most incompetent protection racket in human history. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we have some big news. We have a new lead sponsor, Amber App. They're the number one exchange in the Southern Hemisphere. They're rated for the best customer service around, and their global launch is coming. But the reason we're partnering with Amber App is because of the people. If you haven't listened to our episode with Izzy, CEO of Amber App, you really should go check it out. You'll see why it made perfect sense to partner with Izzy and Amber App. That's all I'll say for now. You really have to check it out for yourself. They have loads of great features coming that we're excited to share with you when the time comes. But for now, just check out the episode, check out their website, amper.app. You can see for yourself why we're thrilled to bring Amber App on as our lead sponsor and partner. So go check it out. Next up, Wasabi Wallet, the privacy by default, open source, non-custodial Bitcoin wallet with CoinJoin built in. It's the easy to use, comprehensive, affordable way to make your coins private. And the best part is they've been making huge improvements to the app. They're really focusing on the user experience, adding advanced features for power users. They just keep getting better. You send your coins to your Wasabi wallet and they get combined with loads of other coins using the Wabi Sabi protocol. So they're private on the other end. Your tracks are covered so you can work on expanding your freedom footprint without worrying about your privacy. So check out wasabiwallet.io and download Wasabi today. So how did it end, you asked me? Well, basically, the short version, and it's very, there's a lot of nuance to this, and I would argue so much has gone on since the convoy 
than happened during, which was only three weeks long. Uh, but basically, the uh, police ended up moving in. Uh, they started raiding some trucks. They uh, It started on the night of the 17th uh, after Chris, Bar- uh, Chris Barber and Tamara, who the person who called me, uh, were arrested. Uh, unfortunately, since then, the video has surfaced of uh, Tamara asking to be arrested, which nobody will answer any questions about. So there's, there's a lot more political stuff going on behind the scenes than we realized during the time. But um, the 17th, uh, it started with one trucker, particularly he was raided by the police. They smashed his windows. He tried to hide in the back of his cab like everybody was told and was doing for the, for the previous three weeks. And they came with guns drawn, threw him in the snow, arrested him, and uh, took him down for processing. They came, the, the road captains came to me the next morning and said, you know, this is what happened last night. Should we leave? And I explained this in the book. All these stories are in the book. And I said, well, listen, uh, you know, uh, if you're, it's, somebody and I both said the same sort of thing one after another. I can't remember which one. I think I started first, but maybe they did. And I said, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do what you want. Like, I'll, I'm, I'm the voice and the strategy and media guy, but if you want to leave, if you, if you want to leave, like, we'll leave and I'll tell people. Uh, if you're asking me personally, uh, I think it's, you know, maybe it's time to leave. If the government's getting violent, then we've won. They're going to be a laughing stock around the world, and we'll make sure, from a PR standpoint, that they are a laughing stock around the world. And uh, and you know, it was funny. A, a month later, or a month and a half later, when I was in Colombia, learning how to walk again because I broke my ankle during the convoy, uh, my friends who used to say, "Oh, you know, Justin Trudeau, he's so he's great, he's young and whatever," and I would just ignore it. And they started calling him this trip. They started calling him uh, Cara Negra Fidelito, which is uh, blackface little Fidel. Uh, so his reputation around the world uh, was destroyed and has not recovered since. But the problem was that it, why did it end? How come the police moved in? And there's a lot of nuance to it. So there's a independent publication called Diverge Media run by Greg Staley, who is from, uh, from Saskatchewan. And... He uh, he's been diving di- he's been diving into all the circumstances since the convoy and the subsequent commission around the convoy, which was completely staged as well. And he's uncovered uh, a lot of the shenanigans that went on behind the scenes and how we were co-opted and sabotaged by the entire political class. And even in the POEC evidence, there's there's emails that were made public, partially redacted. But between the new temporary Conservative Party leader who was installed on February 3rd and Justin Trudeau, so liberal and conservative, agreeing that the protest needs to come to an end and we need to have get the truckers out of Ottawa. So they were working together to screw us. And what we didn't realize is, you know, there's so many people around like it was crazy that the thousands of messages i would get like i learned not to go down to the the um the lobby of the sheridan hotel because i'd have a hundred people trying to talk to me and ask me questions and we i don't know ask this person ask that person whatever but it was it was total chaos but with that many people you gotta think and you know it's in the back of our heads that there are going to be people who are tied to the political establishment 
or law enforcement or but usually it's a political establishment in Canada that are going to try to sabotage us and subvert us. And they ended up doing it right in front of our eyes. And I had somebody, a friend of mine, her name is Diana Davison. She's a very well-known men's rights activist who was did a lot of work for uh, anti-Me Too stuff for many, many years. I produced a podcast with her on false accusations. She called me and she said, hey, I heard the JCCF is involved with you guys. And I said, yeah, they presented us with some lawsuit, some class action suit, but they said they'll take care of it. And don't worry, they'll cover all the fees and whatever. And despite the fact that I have a long list of lawyers, I tried to tell everybody else, they're like, well, let's just go with them. I'm like, whatever, fine. We'll, we'll go with them. And she said to me, whatever you do, get them as far away from you as possible. All their lawyers left in mass a year prior, and all they have left are political activists with law degrees. Uh, they will screw you. Get them as far away as possible. So great. There's another problem I had to deal with is keeping them at bay, keeping all the different groups who are trying to take over and sabotages at bay, the people who showed up on scene to defame first Tamara and myself and then myself when I wouldn't go along with all this crap of, you know, allowing the political establishment to take over. And I, I remember somebody said, you know, I got these uh, emails saying, you know, you should do this with messaging and that messaging and talk about vaccines and whatever. And I'm like, hey, hey, we got our 100 million views the first week. I think I know what I'm doing. I don't need you. When you guys learn how to win an election, then we'll talk. You know, like it was it was so frustrating. Yeah, I had, I had members of parliament, like former members of parliament call me pretending to be staffers trying to persuade me to use conservative party talking points. They're like, oh, yeah. Don't talk about freedom and don't talk about, you know, uh, money and Bitcoin because, you know, Bitcoin became part of it at that point. What you need to do is talk about the reason the truckers are upset is inflation. It's like, <laughs> no, it's because we're locked in our homes and you guys want to force people to take something against their will. So, no. And that's why I became the demon. So you'll see a lot of this online from political ops and bot accounts constantly attacking me because they're still butthurt and they still have to make sure that people won't listen to me, talk to me, listen or read uh, some of the, the research that Diverge Media has uncovered because we've shown how it is the uniparty. It's one party. And that is the problem. You talked about what democracy will lead to. And I'm going to give you one example and they're going to get so butthurt and upset when I say this, but I don't care. <laughs> I ain't leaving and I don't work for any political party. Um, you know, people in Canada, they're all very excited that, you know, Pierre Polyev is the new leader of the Conservative Party. And that's great. And yeah, he's probably going to be the next prime minister. There's no question. And conservatives do what the liberals do at the speed limit. Uh, so what's what is my my problem with that? And I try to warn people. Well, the deputy leader, my pet hate. I hate her. She hates me. I know who she's a mouthpiece for because she's a psycho and that's it. The deputy leader who is a rookie. So how you're a deputy leader when you're a rookie, I don't understand. Was working uh, on behalf of a lobby firm with Walmart as her client during lockdowns to ensure that lockdowns were enforced. Walmart could stay open, but small businesses were clo would close. That's a deputy leader of the conservative party. And the firm that she worked for was co-founded 
by Justin Trudeau's chief of staff. It's the Uniparty. And until we break the Uniparty, nothing's going to change. Well, one of the, the most eye-opening moments about politics for me was when I saw staple diagrams of uh, the expenditures, like the, the budgets for, for the, uh, the, the left-wingers and the so-called right-wingers. And you saw this, the staples just, just barely, uh, I mean, the, they don't really want to change anything. They just want to keep on going as things are and change a little here, a little there, and a little lever here. But no one wants to really change anything. Well, like, like in the case of Canada, Justin Trudeau polls right now at the base level. This is why I love Scott Adams. 25% of people will screw up every, com every question, no matter what you ask them. But they have a, a base of 24% right now that still think Justin Trudeau is doing a wonderful job. Why? Because they're in business together. It's either big business or people work for the government uh, or they have contracts with the government. They're a subcontractor. This is the danger of big government. It leads to this grift that everybody profits from, but unfortunately also destroys the society and it tears apart any sort of freedoms that we should have. So how did Justin Trudeau get into power in the first place? Because conservatives are completely incompetent. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the left isn't right and there's no right left. Like, I'll give you one perf perfect example. Like when Justin Trudeau was elected, that was the election that I ran for the conservatives as a favor to them. I bet they regret that asking me for that favor now. But what can I do? I, I tell the truth, man. Why the elected? Just don't lie and you'll be cool. But anyways, they um, they ran this campaign. They send what they do is they'll, they'll send lit the, the, the literature to all the campaign offices. So you get an email and has all the different sort of flyers and different size and configuration with the branding and the three main points that you are supposed to talk to people at the door. And so I took it all and I said to my campaign team, I'm like, yeah, take all that stuff and you can just throw it out, get rid of it. At that time, I had a business that was on campus doing graphic design and I knew enough about persuasion and marketing and stuff. I'm like, yeah, throw it all out. <laughs> get it away from here. We'll make our own lit. And I managed to take us from a 4% low in our riding to 10% by ignoring the Conservative Party headquarters. Why? Because, and this was my argument to them, but they're so incompetent and so stupid, and it's the revolving door of losers in all these Conservative parties that run all these campaigns. This is why they always lose. And the, for example, with the lit that they sent, there was a tagline, Luke, I'm sure you remember this. It was Justin Trudeau, he's just not ready. And I saw that and I wanted to break my computer. Why? Because marketing 101, you, the subconscious cannot process negative ideas. So when you say Justin Trudeau, he's just not ready, you're forcing the recipient to imagine Justin Trudeau as prime minister. They got him elected because they're so incompetent and stupid. And when I tried to bring that up, I was the bad guy because political parties are cults. And when you leave the party, what do they do? They spend all their time online creating bots to defame you, just like a cult. There's another, there's another deeper answer to that question that I think it was maybe also getting at here was that Trudeau was only in this position because his father was the prime minister for yes. a decade or so back in the, it was the eighties, right? I think, um, 
the seventies and eighties. Yeah. And he, he was terrible. He, he, he broke the, uh, the oil industry the first time in Canada. And, uh, well, then, uh, then he took a trip to Cuba and that was exciting. <laughs> and then, and, and then, so, so Justin gets born nine months later or so, something like that. And then he was a drama teacher and, uh, uh but he gave a, he gave a eulogy at his father's funeral back uh, in the early 2000s. And that's what got him onto the, uh, radar of political people. And then, uh, I don't know, somehow the drama teacher upbringing, silver spoon, et cetera, et cetera, wasn't, uh, a recipe for a great political mind. Well, there's also something to add to that. So, you know, I've always tried to make sure I had friends from all sorts of different backgrounds, political ideas, whatever, because that's how you learn. You you don't, you can't believe in your ideas if you don't challenge them and have people who disagree with you, right? And so I have a friend uh, for many, many years. He was a political guy. I never thought I would be in politics. It's because I saw what he wasted his time with. I'm like, I don't know what you're doing. But anyways, He's a liberal. He was a liberal for his entire life until recently. And I think he might try to go back in to try to fix it. But anyways, uh, he was uh, helping a candidate in a certain riding uh, leading up to Trudeau. And he explained him and many other people have explained. I've heard this many, many times, including former liberal cabinet members who have reached out to me since the convoy, by the way, because they're also concerned. And basically what they did is they had a deal. So it was Omar Algebra, Hoskins, uh, Jerry Butts, who's Trudeau's brain, uh, and a couple of other people. They approached Trudeau. They understood that the name recognition would work. He was the right age. Uh, he looked good enough and that they thought they could make him uh, win the nomination for leader of the, the Liberal Party. And everybody else, the, you know, the Kretchen liberals and whatever, like, the guy's a moron. <laughs> no, he's not going to be elected leader. I and mean, they spent four years raising $40 million uh, to get him elected. And once he did, kind of the older, all parties have an older generation of people who have experience. They understand you can only go so far. You also have to give something to the other side. You can't be quite extreme. They were thrown out of the Liberal Party. And it just became the Trudeau party. But Trudeau's deal was he would, and he, he let this slip one time in an interview. He was to be the relationships manager. He didn't know anything about politics. Again, he's a moron. Everybody knew that. So they told him, look, we'll run PMO. You just have to go out and sell people on Canada, inspire them to be progressive and have a brighter future and blah, blah, blah. We'll give you the talking points, but we'll do everything behind the scenes. And he agreed to it. And that, and nobody in that party thought he stood a chance, but he won. And there we are. And then the conservatives handed it to him. But it, like, for me, it's so hard to understand that it, that it can go so far. I, I saw an interview with Trudeau from back before he was elected president. Yeah. Uh, where the reporter asks him if, if there's a specific country that he's especially impressed by. And he answers China. Like, that's a good role model. And people vote for that. Because remember, we, we all have, all of us do have, um, a certain confirmation bias. And when we're already sold on somebody or an idea that's in front of us, we become blind and oblivious 
to the things that should be red flags, I guarantee you all those people in that room who saw that interview, because it was like a women in, in politics or something, event, yeah. when he said the country I most admire is China, I bet you if you asked every woman in that room, they'll say he never said that. And they say, oh, what a good looking man. Yeah, let's just say, what are you talking about? He didn't say anything about China. He's just talking about Canada. He's running for Canada. Why would he, I bet you if you pulled them, that would happen. Because uh, we all have these blind spots when we buy into some sort of ideal, right? Yeah, yeah, a lot of us do. Um, yeah, what a, what a story. Okay, the part we haven't talked about yet in this whole uh, 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 adventure is how Bitcoin comes in. There's like, the way I remember it, there was a GoFundMe campaign and then all of a sudden, all the GoFundMe funds were go fund, go fund yourselves. Uh, uh, like, uh, they were given back to whoever tried to, uh, or just locked in somewhere, uh, or went to another charity or something. I think they sent them back to the people who tried to donate, right? And uh, so you couldn't do a don't go fund me for, for this particular thing because, because of, uh, I guess, influence from the Canadian government. Okay, so there's there's a lot to unpack there, but I'll do I'll try to do the short version uh, from the beginning. Uh, something that I didn't know that I, I only was told maybe I don't know how many months ago now was there was a, a Bitcoiner who used the handle Moses on Twitter who came to one of the Bitcoin spaces because I'm frequently in Bitcoin spaces, and he mentioned something about the Canadian truckers. He's like, "Oh yeah, I tried to help you guys." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, we had some Bitcoiners." Like, "No, no, no, before." Well, what are you talking about? He said when Tamara and whoever was going across Canada on the way to Ottawa, he said, we were already concerned because they saw the GoFundMe at that point had some like four or five million dollars when we arrived. He said, we Bitcoiners already thought you guys would have your GoFundMe frozen. And listen, we all kind of knew that when they started the GoFundMe, the idea wasn't to get, you know, six million dollars. They didn't think it would grow that big. But uh, he said, I got on the phone with, he said, this woman, Tamara, and somebody in the truck and said, I'm a, I'm a Bitcoiner and we want to help you because the money's going to get frozen. And apparently, and she never told me this, you know, you think she'd tell me this stuff, but she didn't tell me a lot of stuff. Uh, she said, I don't need video game money. I need real money. And I'm like, well, I thought this is not about money. I was shocked when he told me this. I'm like, what? Like, you're lying. He's like, no, no, I did. I'm like, that's crazy. So uh, it became it came on my radar when after one of the interviews that I did, maybe it's after the first weekend, beginning of the, the, the first, after the first weekend, I think into the first week, just after I broke my ankle. So February 5th, I think is what it was, if I'm not mistaken. I get a, tw a message on Twitter from Caribou. And Caribou says, Hey man, you know that's he's like so soft and subtle, even in his text. Like, hey man, are you a Bitcoiner? And I'm like, yeah, because they saw me on somewhere on some interview, and they looked me up on Twitter and they saw hashtag Bitcoiner, the hashtag Bitcoin. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I never talked about Bitcoin. I always just did it on my own. And um, he said, so he obviously gave me some test questions. I can't remember what they were. But he's like, oh, yeah, where do you custody? You know, how do you buy it? Blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. So I'm like, oh, I use this wallet, that, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, okay, so you're, when you get in. And I told him how I, you know, my origin story. And then he said, uh, cool, man, can I come see you? Because we're, we're trying to raise money for Bitcoin for you guys. 
And I said, yeah, sure. Do you want to come tomorrow? He's like, cool. So he apparently he was on his way to see me and he was wearing the Bitcoin toque that he gave me. And a bunch of people saw him like, hey, Bitcoin. He's like, yeah, I'm going to meet BJ. You want to come with me? He's like, oh, yeah, sure. Let's go. So like 15, I think 15 of them just show up in that. We had two rooms. One was the media room. One was my hotel room. They show up in the media room and all these guys <laughs> all around me, they all had Bitcoin stuff. I'm like, hey, guys, what's up? <laughs> and so they told me, yeah, we're, we're running a tally coin and we've raised, I can't remember what it was at that time, maybe two or $300,000 or something. Um, but he said, we've raised a few Bitcoin already and uh, we have more coming in and you're worried about the money being frozen, but we're also worried, you know, it seems nobody understands Bitcoin here whenever I'm like, oh yeah, dude, they're, they're total boomers, all of them. And I said, look, go get Bitcoin. You have my blessing. Uh, I support you. I'll deal with the boomers and try to sort that out. But uh, I got your back and yeah, it'd be great if we can get some uh, Bitcoin to some these truckers and make this Bitcoin's moment. So here I am in this, this scenario where I, I'm trying to now make this alternative media's moment and Bitcoin's moment. It was awesome, right? That's why I probably enjoyed it so much. Beautiful. And uh, so he went out and they started raising money. And that's when I, I met, um, he connected me with uh, BTC Sessions. And I'm like, oh my God, I started watching him. I've told them this a few times. I started watching him on his second or third video. Like he's one of the people who really helped me learn how to custody Bitcoin and all that. I was just watching his tutorials my entire time in Bitcoin. <laughs> he's, he's also one of the first Bitcoiners I, I uh, hooked up with in, in um, um, Riga in 2019. So they were all kind of working together and they had so many technical problems that it's beyond my capacity to understand. Uh, you know, like, yeah, I can run a node, I can self-custody, I have a miner, but that's about as advanced as I get. Like I, I just have other things in my life. But so they were trying to figure it out. They're trying to set up a nunchuck wallet. They wanted to be multi-sig and I'm like, okay, you guys do it. It'll just let me know what's happening. Keep me up to date so I can support you and if we got to message something we can and i went to the boomers who half of them were now political ops as we know as a result of diverge media uh, who are not there to help us but i said to them uh good hey they a bunch of them came into my room because at that time i had a broken ankle so we would have they basically have to come in and out of my room regularly uh just to apprise people apprise each other everything that's going on and a, a group of them came in to my hotel room. I can't remember the reason. There was always a different reason. You know, the fuel truck was being blocked. Uh, you saw what happened with the gas cans. And me and a couple other people thought, well, why would you just buy all the gas cans in the city of Ottawa? You know, so the stuff like that was going on. So they came in. I'm like, hey, guys, good news. Knowing, knowing exactly what I was going to get. I said, there's a bunch of people out there raising money in Bitcoin for us. <laughs> <laughs> just, I wanted them just pipe job. That's for criminal activity. That's criminal money. We can't have Bitcoin here. I'm like, oh, for fuck's sakes. It's like, it's like easier to, to orange pill people in a retirement home than some of these people, you know? <laughs> but, um, so I did my best to try to rapid orange pill people, rapid fire orange pill. Uh, failed miserably, but I knew I'd have to do it over time. And I said to Caribou, don't worry, just ignore them. Just 
do your thing. I got your back. And they were great. So amongst the, you know, the political people is always fighting and infighting and people fighting with each other and trying to cause fights because, you know, people wanted to be on camera, wanted to be famous, wanted to be rich and whatever. And I'm like, oh, my God, you guys don't know what you're into. The Bitcoiners didn't care about any of that. They're like, we just want to help truckers. I'm like, God bless you guys for being so normal and sane. Thank you. You know, it was it was a pleasure. It was like a release to be able to reach out and talk to them. Uh, periodically, and I'd have some sanity versus the other uh, nonsense I was dealing with. And it was great. So we eventually raised $1.2 million in Bitcoin, uh, distributed over $800,000 in that. I, I can't remember how many Bitcoin it was. That I, otherwise, I'd be speaking in Bitcoin. I think we raised 21 Bitcoin, approximately, and distributed 17 Bitcoin or something like that, in, in and about, Okay. And uh, so those 17 Bitcoin went directly to the truckers. And the only way the remaining Bitcoin was seized was the OPP, which is the Ontario Provincial Police, and the RCMP, which is the federal police, got a warrant from a judge who rubber stamps anything. And they raided Caribou's house. And they took his laptop, they took his phones, they took his podcast mic, they just took like a whole bunch of stuff, anything that was electronic, and they scared them. And they're like, what's the seed phrase? They clearly knew about Bitcoin and how it operates. And, you know, he'd never been in trouble with the law. He's never done anything wrong and whatever. And he, you get scared when you get raided by the police. It was just a full intimidation tactic. He still hasn't done anything wrong. That's right. That's right. He's, he's a hero. He really is. He's a hero that we need to celebrate, and we're going to celebrate him much more in the future. But, um, so he, uh, he's okay, fine here, here's, here's my seed phrase, whatever. And then the remaining, because I, I think he got the others from the other people when, when things started to get really hot and that's how he distributed the, uh, the 800 plus thousand. Cause I was dealing with chaos all over the place. And then I submitted the remaining seed phrase into escrow to uh, our the lawyers who just showed up, remember the JCCF I told you about, who now wants claim over the remaining Bitcoin, by the way. Uh, so they uh, submitted the seed phrase in an affidavit to court. So there's an affidavit on the record that it's verified it is in the possession of the bankruptcy trustee. What do you think our lawyer who's tied to the conservative party did? Well, he went on the record in the POEC and said, I don't know what happened to the Bitcoin. Uh, BJ and his Bitcoin guys must have stolen it or something like that. He used, used those exact words. That's the political class who screwed us all, right? They're, they're definitely afraid of Bitcoin, but I think it was an amazing story. That just shows the power of Bitcoin. It, it, it is so amazing because like now, uh, whenever there's a, Peace, peaceful freedom protest anywhere on the earth, literally and, and anywhere where there's an internet connection. Uh, the protesters have this way of funding themselves that they didn't have before. And That's right. A, a way to get around any type of uh, embargo against them, uh, uh, any type of, you know, political interference that it's it, it truly is unstoppable and you you know you can memorize the seed phrase and cross a border uh with 10 million dollars in your head like the it it 
on on a long enough time frame but but also right now it's it changes the political map completely if and something to add on to very important i know if you're going to get there but this is really important when i left we had this whole commission which was an investigation i testified they denied me standing so i didn't get the right to cross examine people because if i did i would have destroyed all of them but i came out of that hearing and there was some woman with a pride flag screaming you know, they knew who I was. She's a political operative now that we know, but screaming, you know, racist, bigots, blah, 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 BJ terrorist, Hong Kong terrorist, whatever. She was just stupidity. And what I did was I grabbed my phone and I went up to right, right in front of her. I turned on Instagram and I said, uh, the, the whole purpose of the freedom convoy was to protect all our freedom of speech, including hers. She should be able to say whatever she wants, and we have the right to refute her if we want. That is the whole purpose of what the Freedom Convoy is, and that's the purpose of Bitcoin. I don't want Bitcoin. I want Bitcoin to be for my adversaries as well, for them to protect their speech, because that's the only way we fix what's going on in our society right now. Yeah. How, how did the racist thing come in? Like, what did this thing have to do with race, like at all? The prime prime minister inferred that, and some other Jewish organizations inferred that I'm a white supremacist, that I'm a Jew. I explained in an interview, like unlike Prime Minister Blackface, Mister Diversity, <laughs> uh, I, some of us still have family buried in mass graves in Europe. But you know what? You, it's it's clown world, man. Just say whatever they want to say. Yeah, That's yeah. it. And they hope that they're persuasive enough that a percentage of the population will just parrot it. Unfortunately, sometimes that happens. Oh man! But but yeah, it, it it's really a testament to the power of Bitcoin. I I know around the same time, like when um, um, Putin invaded Ukraine, there was picture the, there were pictures of a um, some from some border where the customs officers have had confiscated a. Uh, briefcase full of gold bars, rubles, euros, and dollar bills. And, and the funny thing about the picture, I, I don't know if, if, if the, uh, the refugee was Russian or Ukrainian, it doesn't really matter. The, 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 what matters is the answers to the post on Twitter, because all the answers, uh, or all the Bitcoiner answers said, like, look at this idiot who can't remember 12 words. Like, it's <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so good. Yeah, it, but it's true. Like, if you try to bring a gold bar across a border in 2023, you're an idiot. Like, we, we have ways of doing that that are completely undetectable because Bitcoins right. are in your head. Uh, and it doesn't even have to be a seed phrase. It could just be a secret, any, any type of secret that unlocks your, your ability to send the Bitcoin is the Bitcoin. So you are your Bitcoins. And, you know, there's a, a story I incorporated in, in the book that Jeff Booth told me about that he was, I think it was at the Oslo Freedom Forum. I'm not sure um, about some people in Ukraine. By the way, Ukraine, Russia, they all suck. They're all corrupt. I'm not taking a side. They're all horrible, in my opinion. Okay. Well, the governments, their governments are. That's right. That's what I mean. I don't mean the people. I mean the government. Ukrainians the and Russians are, are, uh, are cool people. Yeah, no, no, for sure. 
For sure. No, but the, the people in government are all exploiting the people. So that's why I don't. I don't but anyways, and I say that as a preface because the story that Jeff Booth told me met with some Ukrainian woman and they needed, um, you know, protection, like uh, bulletproof vests and stuff like that. And what they did is they raised it in Bitcoin and they were able to buy what they needed for their community to keep people protected and stuff. So it's not an endorsement for or against Ukraine or Russia. But the point is, Bitcoin was there for everybody on any side who needed it for, you know, humanitarian needs, right? And isn't it funny how people who have a money printer called Bitcoin, you know, criminal, criminal money, money for criminals, they can print money and they call Bitcoin criminal. Yeah, they're worried about the competition, man. As they should be. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the other thing is, you know, you mentioned the GoFundMe and then the Give, Send, Go. The GoFundMe raised $10.1 million. The first week when we were doing the paperwork with GoFundMe, the fake news media took the bait and started saying, oh, the money has been frozen. The money has been frozen. And I told everybody, don't respond. Just let them keep running this narrative because I was ready with a press release once the money, once the paperwork was approved and they started transferring money. They, uh, I put out a press release saying, I don't know why the fake news has once again been lying to their audience, but we've just been doing paperwork with GoFundMe, AML, uh, re registration, all that sort of stuff. And uh, everything's been approved and they're transferring money now. And that lasted, I don't know, three or four days until there was uh, pressure from the city of Ottawa and the Can Canadian government and then some people on the inside who didn't do us any favors. That ended up them canceling that GoFundMe. And then we started a Give, Send, Go, or a Give, Send, Go was already there, started being utilized, whatever it was. Uh, I don't know exactly because I'm getting conflicting stories from people. But regardless, there was Give, Send, Go that raised $9 million in the first 12 hours. Everybody said, screw it. And the reason was because nobody cared about the money. The money was a vote because we were the official opposition to the Uniparty. We were the first real opposition that said enough and had a voice. And people, you know, that inspired people. You know how many messages I got from people? Like some of them were really heavy and difficult to read. And I always remember these two uh, women who had very, very similar stories in different provinces in Canada. That they both had two children. They were both single. They both lost their jobs. And they had both been considering suicide. And the only reason they didn't do it is because they didn't know what would happen to their children. Um, and that was until they saw the trucker convoy and these trucks driving across Canada, bringing people together. And they realized, oh my God, I'm not alone. And I think that was the whole lesson from all of this, that even though we're the silent majority, we're all doing our different lives. We have different things we got to deal with. Uh, at the end of the day, none of us are alone. Most of us are pretty rational and practical, and we just want to be left alone and focus on the things that we're passionate about, focus on our families and our friends and the people we love. And we don't want this bureaucratic bullshit in our life. And this was the first real uh, culmination of unity in Canada that said, we want to go back to that. We're not going along with this. And, you know, the, one of the first interviews I did in Ottawa, and I mentioned this on trigonometry or on Lotus Eaters. I know one of the recent interviews I did, I mentioned this. It was with an, a journalist who was 
in Quebec. She she's a Quebecer working for a French pub, French publication, and we did an hour long interview. It was one of the one of the few print interviews that I did. And I asked her at the end. I said, you know, what do you think about this? And she said, you know, I and it's you know, you Luke, you might be able to help give some additional context to this. She said, I used to be a Quebec separatist, meaning wanting Canada. She did, she rejected Canada. She's a Quebecer and wanted to separate from Canada. She said, I was a separatist my entire life until I saw those trucks driving across the country. And I realized I'm not alone and that Canadians can come together and unify. And she said, I went out and I bought my first ever Canadian flag and I now identify as a Canadian. That's the power we had over the political class. And that is what struck so much fear into them, in my opinion. Yeah, I have to play the devil's advocate here. <laughs> because like, I, I think separatism sounds like a very good idea, as long as goods and services can cross the border. Yeah, I mean, I, I, can, under, I can see that point of view. But you know, at the same time, uh, there's a, a, a YouTuber who uh, I've spoken to a couple of times many years back, and his name is Red Van. He runs a a channel called Apostate Prophet. It's a political thing. We agree, disagree, whatever. But he brought up a really, really interesting point, at least for me. And he said, you know, he was he, he comments on problems in the Middle East because that's where he's from. He's Turkish, okay. And he said, what people fail to understand is we see countries where they have really radical, extreme laws that have full restrictions on freedoms. We'll put it that way. He said, but me being Turkish, we had the solution. He said, that's why Ataturk was so important for us, because Ataturk made us Turkish first, and our religion came second. And he said, in my opinion, that's what prevented Turkey from going down this rabbit hole of extremism that a few countries have done. He said, in my case, it's nationalism and the identity of being Turkish is what protected us. And I think that's a very interesting perspective. So I, I think like many things in life, it's, there's always additional nuance and complexity and every situation can be different. Yeah, and I I think that was very important. Uh, you know, states becoming secular was an important step in their evolution towards me, more freedom. Uh, I mean, that's the basic idea of John Locke, and the it, it, like that was incorporated in the U.S. Constitution. So, so and Atatürk, like it's it's too bad that his that is all being reversed right now. Though the show is also sponsored by Orange Pill app the Bitcoin-only social network where you can stack friends who stack sats. You can connect with your favorite Bitcoiners on the app, make local connections, and even connect with Bitcoiners around the world. You can see what's going on in your area and organize and attend local events. I've been to multiple events organized on Orange Pill app, and they brought Bitcoiners together from all over. And now, with group chat, it's easier than ever to stay in touch with all your Bitcoin friends. The best part is, you know it's high signal. There's no spam on Orange Pill app because everyone pays to be there. So download Orange Pill app on Apple or Android and start building your local network of Bitcoiners. Next up, the Bitcoin way. Their mission is to onboard, educate, and remove barriers to taking self-custody of your Bitcoin. They cover everything from cold wallets to nodes, no KYC Bitcoin purchases, inheritance planning, payments, and more. 
Whether you're new to Bitcoin or you're an experienced Bitcoiner looking to expand your freedom footprint, or you know someone who this sounds perfect for, the Bitcoin way has something for you. They have a skilled team, well-versed in the Bitcoin space, and their goal is to make all the complexities of Bitcoin as straightforward as possible for everyone. And the best part is you can get started with a free 30-minute call with their team. Go to thebitcoinway.com contact for more info. Our newest sponsor is Geyser. They are the portal to the creator economy on Bitcoin. On Geyser, creators can monetize their work through their communities in a social and engaging way, and supporters can send sats to their favorite projects. Geyser has also recently integrated with Zaps and Podcasting 2.0, so every Zap sent to a Geyser address shows up on the Geyser page. We have a Geyser fund ourselves. It's the best way to support our show directly with Bitcoin. So whether you're a creator or a supporter, check out Geyser at geyser.fund today. Well, when you were talking about, uh, you know, the, the right to be left alone, like from a, uh, a libertarian perspective or the, like the great libertarian insight, as I see it, is that it's to, it's to realize that if you don't have the right to be left alone, which is the only, you know, arguably the only universal right that can be the same for all ages and all people, like, uh, if there's one, if there is such a thing as a human right, uh, it would have to apply to all humans forever. Like, otherwise, what's the point? Then it's not a right. So from first principles, the only right that can be is the right to be left alone. And if you don't have the right to be left alone, all you have is the right to obey. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, one of the, I mentioned I produce podcasts. One of the podcasts I produce, you probably would know him, I guess, is a professor by the name of Stephen Hicks. And yeah. Stephen wrote Explaining Postmodernism, what he's most famous for. Yeah. And um, so we produce, we do a podcast called Open College with Stephen Hicks, which were, he sent me all the, um, all the edits for season two, which we're going to release sometime soon. And the hope that I have in the world is I'm starting to see us, we're starting to branch away from this bifurcated view of the world, which is also why I wanted to go to alternative media, because there seems to be less appetite, although the political establishment is trying to force it on people, there seems to be less appetite on for the binary uh, worldview, and there's this emergence online of the libertarian view, which is a whole spectrum. And, you know, I explained this on uh, Michaela P- Peterson's podcast. Can my worldview that I'm trying to, I don't know, propagandize people with <laughs> out of the bifurcated view, which is personally, and I think most of us feel fit within this frame. I like the goals of the left, or at least what they state, that they want to help people whenever. I like the systems of the right. And I like the freedoms of libertarianism. And depending on what the issue is we're talking about, I'm going to plot differently in that triangle. And I think that serves for all of us. I mean, there's nobody in the Bitcoin space who doesn't believe in the principle of helping people. I mean, that's what Bitcoin mm-hmm. is. Bitcoin is about helping people and giving them the opportunity for self-sovereign. But I think if, if we look at the world in that, those sort of terms, it becomes a lot easier as, for us to communicate and understand each other, especially when it's most important when we disagree. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, 
And uh, there's also this this notion of free speech and how important free speech is. Uh, uh, Rothbard points out in the Ethics of Liberty that free speech is only necessary when when preceded by theft. <laughs> and what he means by that <laughs> is that uh, free speech only applies to public domains, like public property. And Rothbard argues that there's no such thing. And this, th- these are all things that, these are all stolen goods, stolen, uh, the, the institutions aren't real. It's all stolen property. So if we had absolute property rights, we wouldn't need freedom of speech laws because you could make your own rules on, in your, uh, on your own property of who gets to say what. Uh, which is like, that was a, a mind blow moment for me. I never thought of it that way. But, but I think that the, you, you can see that in the world today with people from countries with, uh, uh, very well functioning free speech laws, like the Scandinavian countries. You can say a lot of things in Scandinavia, believe it or not. But, uh, um, but people move to Dubai. Why? Because stronger property rights. Because property rights more important than free speech. Uh, <laughs> because you can't have one without the other, really. And isn't it interesting how some of the, the authoritarian policies that we're seeing around the world are all about attacking property rights? You know, I had somebody uh, a couple of days ago just sent me something from Mexico. They have a new law in Mexico that if you own property, but that property is vacant, you know, it's uh, lots of people in Mexico have ranches uh, out in the countryside, in the middle of the country, whatever. So if you have I don't know, a ranch in Jalisco, for example, and somebody decides to move in and just settle on your property and you haven't been there for three months, that's their property. You're basically surrendering the property to them. And I see all of these policies that are, you know, behind the scenes in politics or buried into another bill they're all attacking property rights. So it's a very important point you bring up. There's a very, a very similar law here in Spain. If there are occupants in your home, they can, they have a right to, to, to literally take it over. And isn't it interesting that that comes on the heels of uh, Niall Ferguson's book and subsequent documentary on what has made the West great? And it's from 12, 15 years ago. On the thing that made the West great was our adherence to property rights. And here we are now, what are they going after, you know? Probably. Yeah, uh, our friend Giacomo Soko had a, a great paraphrase of, uh, uh, paraphrasing of Evelyn Beatrice Hall's, uh, I don't care what you say, but I'm going to fight uh, for your right, for you, fight to the death for your right to say it. And Giacomo's version is, I don't care what you pay, but I'm going to fight to the death for your right to pay it, which is, which is like like Bitcoin has so beautifully pointed out to us the same thing. Like freedom of speech doesn't matter if you can't say everything. That includes va- expressions of value. That's money. Uh, so freedom of speech it, it doesn't exist until uh, it, it's an illu- illusion unless you have absolute property rights. From a from a marketing and persuasion perspective. That is amazing framing to communicate to the normies who are still confused about, you know, free speech. 
that your freedom to transact is your ultimate free speech. Yeah, uh, you don't have free speech without that. There's no such thing. Uh, because as Bitcoin's so beautifully pointed out, money doesn't have to be anything but information. It's literally pure information. All the numbers in Bitcoin, all the addresses have existed forever. The numbers were there uh, always. It's just that the hash power was zero before 2009. So we didn't know how to utilize it. But you can, you can uh, find a Bitcoin address, a, a Bitcoin private key by flipping a coin 256 times. And you can derive a public key from that and send money via SMS to, to that uh, address, which is just absolutely mind-blowing. And people are completely oblivious to this wonderful technology that has just... I mean, to us that are, are, are have found it and, and are discussing this on a regular basis, it's just, it, it keeps blowing our minds, like how, how, how deep this rabbit hole goes and how, how weird it is that this is the case. Everything we were told about money was a complete lie. It was just information all along. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. The, um, you know, I, I learned about central banking and our current system. When I was 17 years old, I think, I, I watched uh, over a week, because I, I never watched really TV. I was big into documentaries and stuff. And I watched this documentary called uh, The Money Changers by Bill Still. And he talked about the history of uh, central banking, the history of the dollar, all that sort of stuff. And I was already knee-deep into James Burke's documentaries, Connections, where he did a series of episodes on money and the tally system and all that sort of stuff. So I was always already primed for Bitcoin, not realizing it when it finally came on my radar. But what's so amazing about it is it has something for everybody. doesn't matter what your philosophical worldview. It has something that will, that will communicate with you on a personal philosophical level. And I think what we need to do, in my opinion, this is why I go to so many Bitcoin spaces or non-Bitcoin spaces and talk about Bitcoin when I can, uh, or when I get invited to speak in places, I'll try to always, like on trigonometry, I brought up uh, Bitcoin as well, is it's, we, I, I think in the space, one of the things we need to work on, you know, taking a page from Warren Buffett, you know, there's always wisdom in people we disagree with. He starts his AGMs with, what do we do wrong this year, Right. And which is a very important question. And one thing, you know, when I look at Bitcoin, I think, what do we do wrong is our ability to persuade and reach people who don't even know how our fiat system works and don't care. Like there's people who will never care how Bitcoin works. And I was in this space earlier this week, a guy who was, I think his first time on stage, who's a little bit nervous, small, he's got a, you know, just a guy who's into Bitcoin, wanted to talk about Bitcoin. And he was telling the story, his name's Clark. He was telling the story that he was in work recently and he never talks about Bitcoin with anybody. And when Bitcoin had this recent uh, upswing compared to fiat, by the way, I, I never know what the price is because I don't care. After this whole convoy thing, it's freedom money. That's what I care about. But anyways, these guys, you know you know how it is. Once Bitcoin goes, goes up 20%, all of a sudden people start... The chatter, oh, Bitcoin, what is Bitcoin? And these guys mentioned that um, in the lunchroom, some to the effect of, yeah, Bitcoin went up. And then one of the other guys says, yeah, but it's really volatile. 
And Clark, like this is so persuasive, and I think a lot of Bitcoins, Bitcoiners don't realize it. Uh, he did what's called the high ground maneuver. And he just said, I don't know, looks like the dollar is the one that's volatile to me. I didn't say anything else, right? Because when you say enough just to spark interest, they have to fill, the recipient has to fill in the gaps. And yeah, I predicted it. They, they, they paused for five or 10 seconds, thought about it. They didn't have a rebuttal. And so what is the default? Well, yeah, that, that's, that's a good point. And I think that's what we need to work on in Bitcoin. Price stability uh, and the, the need for an institution to, to ensure price stability is probably the greatest lie I've ever told. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm just going to do a quick time check here, guys. We've got less than uh, half an hour. And uh, this is so far, this is a fantastic conversation. And I, I have a feeling we'll, we'll need to, to do uh, a follow-up. Uh, but, but, uh, BJ, I'd like to give the floor to you because I know you had some questions you wanted to ask Knut actually. So, well, Knut, I, you know, I'm going to be sharing this with people who don't know Bitcoin, people in my discord, no, don't know Bitcoin, don't know your story, uh, people in my discord, uh, people in my DM groups and all that sort of stuff. I, why don't you give, I mean, I know a lot of your story and it's fascinating, but why don't you give, you know, not the elevator pitch, but the extensive elevator pitch of yourself uh, to help me better introduce you to people who follow me? Oh, what an honor. Uh, <laughs> I, well, uh, I'm 47 years old. Uh, I grew up in Sweden uh, and a, couple, a handful of other countries. Uh, so lived for half a year in Mozambique and a couple of years in, in Tanzania. So I was like exposed to other countries as an, uh, at an early age. And I uh, studied enge engineering, like after, after high school, I started studying uh, engineering, um, uh, electronics engineering, but I only did that for, for one year because I was so tired of school, so I dropped out uh, with, a, with a huge loan and uh, nothing to show for myself. So uh, then I decided to, to sort of semi follow in my father's footsteps and uh, aim at becoming a sea captain. So I started working on, on ships. Um, I, my hobby at the time was sailing uh, old traditional gaff rigged sailing ships. And um, so, so uh, I, I tried to make a career out of that, basically. So, so my university degree is Master Mariner. Uh, uh, so, uh, and after I graduated from that, a couple of years later, when I, I got my certificates and everything, I, I uh, started working as an officer on a tall ship uh, with uh, high school students on board. So sailing around the Atlantic uh, and visiting a lot of countries. And uh, I did that for eight years and I had a lot of time to, to think there. The job wasn't very hard. Or, uh, so, so I had a lot of spare time and I spent a lot of time abroad uh, seeing different countries and different systems. And that's somewhere, somewhere during that journey, I found Bitcoin and I don't remember exactly when, but then uh, I met my wife on board this ship and I had, uh, w when we had kids and everything, I had to figure out something else to do, something closer to home. I couldn't really be away for 10 weeks at a time that just didn't work. So I find, found another job at a, a, a shipping company in, uh, in Gothenburg, 
as a, a skipper on small crew transfer vessels uh, to that uh, transported technicians to um, to uh, wind turbines in the Baltic Sea and in the North Sea. So so that's what I did for a couple of years, and then I started working in the office and worked my way up to uh, a, the, being the HR manager of this. Uh, this uh, shipping company, which is the last fiat position I had before I decided to quit and uh, start to do Bitcoin stuff full time. Because during my time uh, on the boats and and uh, in the office for this shipping company, I also started writing about Bitcoin. So I, I started writing articles after uh, I took an online course in 2016, started writing articles in 2017. Got a bit of attention for that. And compiled the articles into a, a book, uh, which turned out not so good because I, I wasn't very proud of that book. And this was like my learning journey to to writing. Uh, so so I decided to write a proper book, which was Sovereignty to Mathematics, my first book, and that was done uh, spring or summer 2019. And then I brought them to the Baltic Honey Badger Conference in Riga. I brought 50 books there, gave 25 of them away to important people in Bitcoin and sold the other 25. And then that, that book started to have a life of its own. And it was uh, were very well received by the community. So I continued writing. I wrote another book the, the next year. And I started writing articles for uh, some for Bitcoin Magazine, some for other publications, and most of them for Citadel 21, which is Hodlonot's uh, Bitcoin fanzine that I'm, sadly he's not making any, any more issues of. Uh, and one of the articles in that uh, had a sentence in it, an article called Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole, uh, which was published on the 21st of August 2021, which I figured out in hindsight. I didn't know that until this comes to later in the story. And in that, in that article, there's a sentence. It says, imagine everything there is and everything that ever will be divided by 21 million, which then, uh, <laughs> uh, Yoni Appelberg, uh, made a beautiful animation of this article. Um, and we made it into a little video, which is where this, uh, equation was first shown. And, the, <laughs> and then, that got a lot of attention, and people started uh, adding this equation to their Twitter handles and stuff. And all of a sudden, I had a folder on my computer with everything divided tattoos. <laughs> like I've seen, uh, I think there's uh, between twenty and thirty different people in that folder on my computer now that have actually tattooed this thing into onto their bodies. So that really, that thing really changed my life, and it led also to the how we uh, invented Bitcoin Infinity Day, which is uh, <laughs> still a thing. And uh, we had a, an Infinity Day special here t this year, me and Luke. We started this whole Freedom Footprint thing on Infinity Day last year, which is the 21st of August then. So um, and now I do all sorts of Bitcoin stuff for a living, uh, including this show, including the books, uh, including going to conferences and talking and uh, advising a couple of companies and uh, yeah, also, anything fun. <laughs> so, uh, so, so that's my story and my, my journey. And, uh, I love to think about Bitcoin and I love to talk about it. I love to try to explain it to people. I love to talk to other interesting people in the space, uh, such as yourself. 
and I I love doing what I do. Well, I met in uh, in Florida on one of my many trips. I've basically grown up partially in Florida, but on one of my trips there, I think it was Bitcoin 2023. Actually, uh, I met an artist who uh, does Bitcoin art, and he gave me a bunch of st- very cool stuff. And um, one of them is it's with kanji. And it also has infinity divided by 21 million. And I have that in the back of my car. It's a very subtle sort of uh, Bitcoiners will understand it. And the rest of the people have no clue what it is. It's very what, cool. art, what artist was that? You know, and I can't remember. I, I have his, I'm looking for him on Twitter. I can't remember his name. I'll find it to you and I'll send it to you. Yeah. The, the artist I've been collaborating with back and forth and, and we go way back is, uh, is of course, Fractal Encrypt, who, who I think is by far the best artist in Bitcoin. Like he's the, he's the Leonardo da Vinci of our time. Very cool. So uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, as Luke put it in Lugano, like the, the surreal doesn't end. I mean, we both keep on pinching ourselves for just ending up in this weird, uh, surrealistic, uh, situations that we end up in and we try to do our best and, uh, be polite and uh, l- <laughs> learn from each experience. And uh, be, we try to stay humble, uh, even though a, a lot of weird things are happening to us all the time. And uh, we just love it. We want to embrace life and and live it to the fullest. To the fullest. We, uh, we, uh, we, we follow the orange glowing light. That's what Izzy called it. And that's exactly what we're doing. And we're proud of it. Which, by the way, if anyone would like to, if anyone from from your uh, following would like to get an introduction to us, a, a proper one, our episode with Izzy is is uh, definitely the one. He's he's a, a dear friend, and uh, it it shows the absolute best of me and Canute and uh, and Izzy. So and the absolute worst. <laughs> send me the link. <laughs> send me the link, and I'll post it. And yeah. you know, you also you, you touched on something that for me is very very important. Um. And I think this is going to become increasingly important for people in the Bitcoin space as Bitcoin becomes more adopted. You know, during this period of my life, this trucker convoy, I saw the best in humanity. You guys all saw it on TV when you saw the dance parties and us coming together. But I also saw the worst in humanity. And that was some of the noise that I was, not just the politicians, but some of the noise that I was dealing with um, that surrounded us. And, you know, my advice, somebody told me this a long time ago, and I'm sure other people have shared similar things, which is before you achieve any sort of fame or any sort of wealth, you need to have your demons sorted. We all have them. Because if you don't get your demons sorted, then fame or wealth or mass adaptation of Bitcoin that makes you wealthy is going to amplify the worst parts of your character. And that's what I was dealing with during the Freedom Convoy from a whole bunch of political people that all the demons came out. And I don't want to see that happen in Bitcoin. I, w- all I've seen from people in general, because I've orange-pilled a lot of people who were normies prior to the convoy, and the convoy really woke them up about the importance. I mean, uh, RFK said it on stage in Bitcoin uh, 2023. He said, uh, it was the Canadian truckers that made me realize we have to have 
uh, free money that's separate from state money. And so all the experiences everybody I brought into Bitcoin has been positive because everybody's been humble. I'm just a regular guy with a truck who's got some opinions and doesn't back down from the government, but I'm just a regular dude, right? Uh, I think that is going to be very important for bringing people into the space and showing that juxtaposition between the authoritarian fiat system that, hey, man, look, you have this positive, really level-headed freedom space called Bitcoin. You can come in if you want. If you don't want to, fine, but we'll always be there for you. I think that's going to help us over the long term as well. We, we all have to be aware of our demons and, and focus on humility. Absolutely. That's, that's beautiful. And uh, I agree 100%. Like, as you said, like money is an amplifier uh, of, of your personality. You get to do what you want to do more. If you have more money, that's, that's what money does. And uh, uh, the, the thing that differentiates uh, Bitcoin from traditional money, though, is that there's no way to abuse the system. Yeah. So the only the only way for you to use Bitcoin is to exchange it for a good or a service, which is good for everyone in society. Like that's how civilizations work. We we exchange goods and services with one another, and then we thrive via the free market system. So uh, and that's the only thing Bitcoin can do. You can't leverage uh, the system and uh, abuse it, like. Maybe to some extent here in the in the first years, you could be a whale and sell a whole bunch, and then the price goes down, and then you can buy in again. Like, but but you can't you can't do that forever. And I I suspect we're past that phase already. Oh, and 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 also yeah, and also in that vein too. Um, I was just after I went to the UK, I went to Florida, and I spoke at an altcoin conference or a cryptocurrency conference, whatever it was. And before I did, I made sure to tell everybody who knew me, I'm not an altcoiner. I never will be. We all went down the rabbit hole for a few months and got taken for a little bit. It happened to everybody. It was part of the learning experience with Bitcoin. I've done it. Everybody's done it. Okay, fine. I said, but the reason I'm going there is because the people who host it uh, are also Bitcoiners. And it was the story of the trucking convoy that they wanted me to share with them to try to explain to them that you can't ignore Bitcoin. And I got went into some of their spaces. You know, these younger kids are all into NFTs and all this sort of nonsense. They didn't even know what Bitcoin was. No. No clue. So I explained my story, the trucker convoy, whatever. And then all of a sudden, oh. And so I, I went down to Florida. I gave the speech. I promise people I'm not going to be hostile. I'm not hostile towards people who go to Vegas and throw money away in a casino if they enjoy it. I don't gamble, but if that's what you want to do, fine. But we got to agree on Bitcoin. So I went, I gave a speech. I got to talk to Davey because he hasn't uploaded it yet. But I gave a speech on stage about Bitcoin and freedom and how Bitcoin helped us in Ottawa. It's the only thing that worked. We didn't go to Sushi Swap. We used Bitcoin for a reason because of proof of work and all that sort of stuff. And when I saw them the next night at the after party, uh, the, one of the organizers came to me privately and he said, man, that was great what you did. Everybody was talking about your speech today. It had an impact. 
they're now becoming curious about Bitcoin or less adversarial towards Bitcoiners or whatever. And I think that's something to show moving forward that, look, nobody likes scam artists. There's always going to be scam artists in everything. There's scam artists in Bitcoin or trying to steal other people's Bitcoin. What are you going to do, right? That's just how humans behave. But I think if we work towards making it an open space for people who are genuine and want to come in and learn about Bitcoin, they're gonna, if they're doing projects or whatever, like it, it's not my thing. But the problem is the authoritarian fiat system. And we can all have this common denominator of Bitcoin. And if we can do that, that's what's going to grant greater individual freedom to all of us over the long term. And I think a lot of this was just a distraction to get people fighting with each other. So I'll share that with you when that speech comes out. Uh, it's one of the ones I'm very proud of because, as I was told, it had an impact reaching to the other side. Many of them are younger. They don't know. And now they're curious about Bitcoin, which I'm going to try to continue to do more and more of that. They're, they're a bit curious. Yes. That's right. <laughs> That's a good way to describe it. <laughs> All right, I, I, I think I think this is the the perfect point to uh, wrap this up on because uh, I know we have to let you go here in uh, a bit. Uh, so so BJ, can can you tell our listeners uh, what you'd like uh, them to check out from from your side where they can find you all that? Yeah, there's two domains. One is honkingforfreedom.com. That's where you get this book. And by the way, it's Christmas season, and what's very important in this book. There are two chapters in this book. So it's a normie book. It's all the positive stories about Bitcoin. I don't get into a lot of the political BS and all that sort of stuff. It's all the heartwarming stories. But there's two chapters. Chapter 29, this was Bitcoin's moment. And chapter 30, Bitcoin proves its power. And this is what I call the soft orange pill. This is for the normies to give them an introduction to make them curious about Bitcoin. I tell Caribou's story and myself and Sessions and what we were all dealing with at that time. This is a good word of warning to the normies of why you need Bitcoin and freedom money in your life. So honkingforfreedom.com, it is Christmas soon. It's a great gift. And by the way, this is not partisan. This is designed to resonate with people across the spectrum. And the other one is my personal domain because I do live streaming now. I'm in Twitter spaces all the time. My Substack's got 80 or 90,000 people who subscribe to it, uh, which is BJ. Go to benjaminjdictor.com and that will lead you to the book, the Substack, my locals, my live streaming, uh, or join Talks of Happy Hour with Pubby and the guys and Anders. I'm there with them almost every day and sometimes in Cafe Bitcoin as well. Excellent. I'll try to join join Pavi and Anders uh, their toxic happy hour more, more. But uh, yeah, somehow I have less and less time now that I have more time on my hands. Yeah. Uh, anyway, for your friends and for people who already have your book, go to knutswanom.com to find all my stuff, all my books, all of my videos. And don't forget to like, subscribe and brush your teeth. Uh, <laughs> and uh, with... I absolutely love this conversation, Benjamin, and uh, we'd we'll love to have you back on again uh, uh, to to follow this up at some point. And so next next time around, we'll talk about why my name is almost cunt and why you're called BJ Dictor. <laughs> yes, so uh, <laughs> it's not the simulation, man. That's more yeah. evidence. <laughs> yes. So 
yeah. Thank you, BJ, and see you see you around, and uh, good luck with everything. I love it, brother, and we'll talk soon. I'm here anytime you need me. Great. This has been the Free of Footprint Show. Thanks for listening.